Welcome to Energy 360, the podcast from the Energy Security and Climate Change Program at CSIS. I'm your host, Lisa Highland. We're bringing you a new series of episodes focused on how countries and regions are dealing with the energy and climate impacts of COVID-19. This week, we asked experts from India, China, and the Middle East to share the biggest changes they see happening in energy markets, how governments are responding, and what we might expect from regional and international engagements. And in this episode, Energy Program Director Sarah Ladislaw talks with Arunabhag Grosh of the Council on Energy, Environment, and Water to talk about India. Let's turn it over to Sarah now. Well, listen, Arunabhag, thank you so much for joining me today. It's really great to hear your voice. I hope you're doing well. I'm doing great, Sarah, um, and I hope everyone out there is fine. It's 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 not just uncertain times; these are you know bizarre, surreal times. But I'm trying to see it in a different way. It's like we are all present at the creation of a new world. I think that's a, that's a great way to think about it. <laughs> well, listen, I mean, we wanted to have some conversations with people from different parts of the world because, well, as you said, we're all in this strange new world. I think it's all sort of impacting us and the energy sector differently uh, depending on where we are. And so I was just, you know, curious, what what has been the impact on India's energy sector uh, to date, mostly, you know, because of the lockdown, but but any other factors that you guys are uh, you guys are paying attention to? Well, you know, um, as you know, Sarah, we were already in the middle of an energy transition, which was a fairly aggressive energy transition, a big push towards renewables, uh, while we were dealing with the legacy issues in our power sector, at the same time trying to reform fossil fuel subsidies uh, and dealing with whatever is happening in the oil markets. Now, when this uh, crisis uh, began, the, the first hit was on the power sector. And, and I would say there is a good, bad, and ugly version of this. On one hand, there was a complete slowdown in power sector demand. Uh, our analysis at CEW suggests that um, the weekly power demand uh, dropped by 28% on a year-on-year basis between uh, last year and, uh, say, late March and until the middle of April. So that's a, that's a that's like more than a quarter of your power system, which is already one of the world's largest power systems, um, not getting the kind of demand that is needed. Now, the revenue loss as a result uh, was equivalent to, um, in our currency, about 15,000 crore or about uh, $2 billion. So that's, wow. that's a huge amount. It, it compares against, say, a cumulative loss about $4 billion over the course of the previous year and uh, uh, when it comes to the the distribution companies and their revenue losses. So you have a major hit uh, in terms of power demand and the associated impact for the revenues that distribution companies can earn. Now that's uh, that's the sort of ugly part of it because you're dealing with the distribution companies that are already in very unstable uh, footing and kind of taking away revenue from them. Mm. Now what's the sort of relatively good part of this. Um, the relatively good part of this is that the hit has been primarily on the thermal power producers. The coal-based um, power plants have been hit more. Um, so there, the share of thermal power in the grid energy mix dropped by 6%, while on the other hand, the share of renewables and hydro, hydropower 
increased by four and a half percent during the same period. Mm. Well, one of the reasons is regulatory. We have uh, something called the must-run status for renewables. So that has helped for renewables to keep going while the hit has been on thermal power. So some are arguing, right, well, this is the time to really rethink the energy mix that we have and see if we can push the energy transition faster or not. Mm. The bad part, however, is that despite this kind of temporary increase in renewable energy's share in the mix, it still puts in a lot of uncertainty, not just for the power system, but for the energy transition in and of itself. Because what it does is it raises uncertainties about existing renewable energy projects, whether they will be able to keep generating power, but also get paid for it when, on the other hand, the distribution companies are losing revenue. Mm whether the projects that are under construction will actually get completed when the economy is in lockdown. And that means that those companies are racking up their debts and their interest payments without being able to complete their projects. And it raises uncertainty over the projects that had to be, or the capacity that had to be tendered out. Um, just five days before the lockdown began, the government had announced that about 31,000 megawatts of renewable energy capacity was going to be put into new tenders. Um, so now th that gets delayed and you don't know uh, when that will come about. So there is this mm. kind of very ugly part of a very messy power system having to deal with this drop in demand and drop in revenue. There's the relatively good part of the impact being more on thermal power rather than renewables. And yet there is this bad uncertainty around what the energy transition would look like when you uh, aren't able to kind of develop and run the projects as fast as you want. I want to ask you more about the impact on the energy transition and then and then before that even some some questions about how the government is responding. But you know, you I mean, 28% decline in electric power demand, that's actually quite a bit larger than we're seeing in some other places. I think the IEA average was uh somewhere between 10 to 15% decline in power generation in most places where there was significant, you know, social strictures on being able to go out. Why Why is it so high in India, relatively? Well, my guess, I mean, I've not compared these numbers with what's happening uh, globally, but my guess would be that the, it's the structure of the economy, right? Um, yeah. So if you take a, 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 an average, um, your, your typical developed economy, it's going to be primarily a services economy, right? And which means that even if you're under lockdown, you could potentially be delivering a lot of your economic activity through, you know, information technology and, you know, just carrying on uh, as it were. Uh, whereas uh, now India's uh, GDP also is more than 50%, but there is a sizable manufacturing sector, which is under complete lockdown. Now, within that manufacturing sector, there's a huge share, which is small, uh, micro, small and medium enterprises. Now, they also rely a lot more on, on electricity or captive generation compared to, mm. say, very large-scale industrial units, which might require, you know, thermal coal and so forth. So that's another hit there. The other part is that we have a very large proportion of the population in the agricultural sector and the rural economy. Now, when that shuts down, basically, you're, you're not run, no longer running your irrigation pump sets and so forth. Uh, and finally, even on transportation, you know, the largest consumer of electricity in the in the country actually is the Indian Railways, the second largest mm. rail network in the world. 
Um, mm-hmm. And that's the single largest consumer of electricity in the country. Now, the railways have stopped. So I would say that, you know, these are maybe some of the factors that might be adding those incremental demand drops over and above what's happening globally on average. No, that makes a lot of sense. That makes a lot of sense. So what has the government been doing so far? I mean, what's their primary concerns been? How does this, you know, relate to uh, how they've been thinking about, you know, stabilizing the economy overall? You know, the number one priority for the government right now in any case has been entirely focused on trying to contain the pandemic. You know, everything is viewed through that lens, Um, whether it is in terms of, you know, the decision to lock down the economy or whether it is, you know, where limited fiscal resources are going to get deployed. Uh, And that then begins to inform a lot of the kind of decisions uh, that are taken. So, for instance, recognizing the, uh, the the situation with the power sector, the power ministry announced a three-month moratorium on payments to the power generators. So the distribution companies did not have to pay the generators except the renewable energy producers. You still have to keep mm-hmm. paying the renewable energy producers. And the government was is, has been planning to infuse some liquidity into the distribution companies. Now, this infusion of liquidity has happened in the past as well. It's a bit of deja vu. We, we Every few years, we decide to kind of pump money into poorly performing distribution companies, but that was one sort of move. On the other hand, we have what are called fixed charges and variable charges in our in our power tariffs. So mm-hmm. the, the variable charges were anyway based on consumption, uh, but the fixed charges on industrial consumers Um, Now, that the distribution companies were asked to waive those charges off as well because the industries were Mm -hmm. shut. So Mm -hmm. now you have a situation where the distribution companies are stuck (laughs) in in a rock and a hard place because they got to keep paying, say, a renewable energy producer, but they can't apply the tariffs, the the fixed charges tariffs on the industrial consumer. So there's no revenue coming in. And that's that's what's determining this kind of double whammy that I was mentioning earlier uh, for the distribution companies. Now, that is having uh, a challenge, you know, in terms of it's not really raising any new revenue for the government, but the government is trying to help figure this out in terms of at least making sure the generators don't go completely out of business and, and, yeah. uh, and the businesses don't go completely out of business. Now, that's one type of issue that's been happening. The other is on the renewable energy side, there has been some, you know, uh, positive uh, developments where the Ministry of Renewable Energy uh, has made some announcements on force majeure and reiterating Mm -hmm. that the must-run status of renewable energy generation should continue and that uh, the, uh, as I mentioned earlier, that these generators will continue to get payments from the distribution companies. The other uh, aspect that has happened very recently is as this lockdown has begun to ease off a little bit, um, it's still the country is still under lockdown, but we've now divided it up into green, orange and red zones. So where economic activity is kickstarting, um, the government has very explicitly mentioned that in situ construction activities uh, will be permitted and then added onto it very explicitly renewable energy projects. So this is kind of recognizing that that uncertainty I was mentioning earlier about the projects that are being constructed, will they get finished on time when the labor has been sent home and things like that. So made a very specific 
move towards kind of restarting those projects. There is um, now thinking around, you know, wh where do we get additional revenue from? So for instance, you know, the oil price collapse, uh, what we tend to do when oil prices go down is we hike up the excise duties on petroleum mm -hmm. products to soak up the revenue without necessarily passing on the uh, the low price benefits to consumers. When the prices go up, you reduce the tax rates. So again, consumers don't get hit. So mm -hmm. even in this case, there is a move towards capitalizing on the low oil prices to shore up the revenues, especially when many other sources of indirect taxation are are, are missing when the economy is in sure. a shutdown mode. So these are some of the some of the steps that have been made, but I would say they're still a little bit tentative because they're uh, this is not where the attention is uh, directed. Uh, and I think this will will begin to see more attention as, you know, assuming after the 18th of May when the lockdown ends uh, and we are able to think about, okay, now we really have to start up the economy again. Then I think more, more uh, issues will have to be considered. So I want to ask how you think uh, those changes that you've seen so far, as tentative as they might be, might translate into more more permanent changes, right? So uh, we've seen a lot of pricing reform or payment delay in countries around the world who are just, you know, trying to make sure during the period of lockdown that, you know, things uh, stay running and, and people can still afford to pay for their uh, electricity bills or, or whatnot. But but I think there is some general concern that, you know, it, particularly in uh, in countries that have a history of sort of, you know, subsidizing different parts of their energy sector in terms of payments, that th these things may persist longer than than just the sort of economic downturn. So that's, I guess that's one question but but in the broader context of are there ways not in which you would advocate for changes uh, relative to this coronavirus uh, uh, sort of economic downturn and, and the energy policies that you're seeing, but ways that you suspect there may be changes to the sort of policies in the Indian context? So let's take, uh, Sarah, let's take the payment delays part, uh, you know, uh, as, as a starter. As I mentioned earlier, the, the distribution companies are having to pay renewable energy generators, but not the thermal power generators. But at the same time, they, they've been told to not impose charges on the industrial consumers. Uh, now, what the government has proposed is that the distribution companies push back uh, the due date for bill payments by at least a month or two uh, without mm -hmm. charging a late payment fee. And on top of that, the central government could consider waiving off the electricity uh, bills for, say, three months, you know, and directly compensating distribution companies. Now, mm -hmm. this would mean that you have to kind of provide a lifeline uh, amount of electricity consumption to households. Um, most of uh, Indian households uh, consume very little electricity, just about 50 units a month. So providing mm -hmm. that lifeline level of uh, support would cost about $450 million over a three-month period, um, which is just 5% of the annual power subsidy. So this is one mm -hmm. way a little bit that you can make sure the, you know, the lights are still switched on during this period of uncertainty, and especially when the summer months hit 
and you need you need cooling in your homes. Uh, but at the same time, protecting the distribution companies from a complete bankruptcy. That's a little bit, um, you know, mm. very here and now, very short term. Sure. But more broadly, where do we see things that, you know, can can change or I would say the, the pandemic forces us to have the rethink that we might not have been having otherwise? Uh, mm. I think certain reforms just have to uh, happen now. There's this mismatch that we have in the way we uh, look at the average cost of supply and the average revenues that are recovered by distribution companies. And there's a massive mismatch, I mean, um, in in the way our tariffs are structured. That uh, has to be fixed. And the longer we delay, uh, we will just keep perpetuating the crisis and then you will not have any kind of cushion to handle, you know, these kinds of shocks. The second thing that has to happen, I would say, is the actual uh, um, reduction in the distortion in the cross subsidies that we have between the industrial consumers on one hand and the um, residential consumers or the agricultural sector on the other hand. Now that, because we don't recover the the cost of supply um, from the agricultural sector, say in a large state like Uttar Pradesh, uh, we don't mm-hmm. even get 40% of the cost of supply from the revenues that are charged. And that's assuming the revenues that are being, I mean, the the bills that yeah. are being charged are actually getting paid. <laughs> um, uh, whereas the uh, commercial and industrial sector is having to pay uh, more than 100% of the cost of supply, almost 150% of the cost of supply uh, to cross-subsidize. So that has to be fixed. Then there are some smarter things that we can be doing on the billing and collection. Um, and uh, we've actually deployed, uh, CW, we've deployed smart meters in some uh, mm. tier two cities to kind of evaluate how uh, people are consuming power, how their appliance uses, et cetera. But the use of, you know, universal metering and billing based on metered units must become mandated because then the distortions begin to get reduced. And then we also have to think about, as I said earlier, Think about the real transition away from thermal power. I'm not at all suggesting that that's going to be overnight. It's a very, very different electricity system compared to, say, Europe. Uh, although yeah. India has, generates a larger share of its electricity from renewables than, say, the United States does. Yeah. But the fact that these thermal power units are, um, are stressed, were already stressed, their capacity utilization was extremely low even before the crisis hit. Given that just a few weeks before the crisis hit, we had the world's uh, record price on renewables plus storage, the largest such tender of 1,200 megawatts, beating, you know, the the tariff that coal could have been charging. And given that we have very distorted uh, energy subsidies that could be corrected for, I think these give us an idea that both on the regulatory side and the kind of the, on the business side of how you structuring tariffs, but also on the macro side of what your electric system could look like, there's opportunity to make it more permanent than just temporary, uh, the transition. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I, I want to ask you about two more big topics in the in the time that we've got left. Which one? You know, I, I think this opportunity for pricing reform is just such a uh, and and sort of tariff and structure reform is such a big deal uh, and and obviously something you guys have given a lot of thought to. I want to change the the topic just like a little bit, which is you know in a lot of other places and there's certainly this analogy being made to the last economic downturn of 2008 and the wave of sort of green oriented stimulus that we saw at that period of time and and whether now is different and whether there are opportunities for you know a, a green recovery program is that a really active conversation in India are you know your sort of politicians and and people thinking about stimulus in the same way and, and what prospects do you see for being able to accelerate the transition that you were talking about before through those kinds of stimulus programs? How active and, and quite frankly, how real is that conversation in India? That conversation has not really begun, you know, in a serious way, at least within in the time that has passed since the crisis began. Um, because, yeah. I mean, the, the, the virus hit us a little later than Europe and North America. So we yeah. went in lockdown in late March. Um, so we've been in it for just over six weeks. Of course, there are many segments of the economy that are already arguing for a stimulus. Uh, even before a stimulus, they're arguing for relief. Uh, so I actually divided up into three stages of whatever it will take. There's, there's relief, uh, there's recovery, and then there's stimulus. That, that relief itself could be about relief for individuals, migrant labor, you know, below poverty line households, um, agricultural labor, that kind of human security concerns, uh, which is where the attention has been focused so far. The $23 billion package that the government announced is entirely a relief measure of that kind. Um, but relief can also be for small and medium enterprises, power sector, etc., where you are just trying to keep these businesses alive, you know, um, making sure that they are able to pay their employees and so forth. Now, that kind of relief also has not yet happened, but many would argue that is needed. Then comes the recovery. So suppose you end the lockdown and you hope that there's not a second or a third wave. Then you have you have to kind of get the wheels of the economy going. Uh, and there again, I think it's going to be a little bit of a, mad dash to try and catch up with lost time in the in the financial year in just terms of economic activity. So the real opportunity, Sarah, lies in that third phase, the stimulus phase. And I see that not really kicking in before the end of the first two quarters, um, which is basically the end of September. That's when I think we'll, we can seriously think about how to deploy a massive stimulus package assuming that we can find the resources for it. But of course, we have to do the thinking and the preparation for it beforehand. And I've sure. been arguing for a long time, um, that I, I, well, from well before the crisis, that the Indian economy is already was already in trouble. And you can have economic growth either through government spending or through infrastructure spending or consumer spending. Now, consumer spending was already down uh, in 2019-20 financial year. Infrastructure spending was suffering because of some regulatory uncertainties, non-payment of the contracts and things like that. And government spending was constrained by, um, by fiscal limits. 
Mm-hmm. Now, if you have to find a new way to stimulate growth, you you need a big push from some other source, some completely untapped opportunity uh, that right. still makes economic sense but has not been exploited, and that's where the green economy comes in. That's where. Um, not just on the supply side, the renewable energy projects coming up and so forth, um, but also on the kind of, you know, industrial strategy side, the the mobility transition. Now, think about it this way. Bulk of our automobiles, uh, our vehicular sales are two-wheelers. Once the lockdown ends, people will have to get back to work. And there is, even with limited public transport provision, there's going to be the risk of you know social distancing or or lack thereof in public transport. Mm-hmm. So can we stimulate you know our plans for the electric vehicle transition um, in a way that the the next choice of the margin that people make for a two wheeler, a motorcycle or a or a scooter is not based on an internal combustion engine, but an electric vehicle uh, based um, two wheeler. So that you get a completely new source of value addition. Yeah. Uh, similarly, with distributed energy, I think there is a huge amount of untapped opportunity because your your power bills come down. It increases local employment. Uh, our estimations uh, suggest that uh, a rooftop solar plant creates seven times more jobs per uh, megawatt hour uh, compared to even a utility scale solar plant, which anyway creates more mm-hmm. jobs than a coal based solar uh, coal based power plant. Um, mm-hmm. So distributed energy creates localized value addition, but also jobs. Um, then we have another avenue, which is in the, as I said earlier, the micro, small and medium enterprises, a very large share of industrial value addition coming from them, about 40%, about 40, 40-45% of our exports in uh, coming from that sector. Now, mm-hmm. this is also the sector that faces very high energy costs as a share of its input prices. And that makes this sector uncompetitive in export markets. Yeah. Uh, if you can electrify the sector faster and provide more renewables-based electricity, which is already now out-competing coal, you actually improve the economic competitiveness of a very large share of your industrial sector that also employs the bulk of the industrial labor force. Mm-hmm. So... There are multiple, and I've just suggested a few. Then there is the opportunity in in sustainable agriculture, um, Mm -hmm. which is also uh, where we can save our estimations in just one state of Andhra Pradesh suggests that on an annual basis, it could save 2,000 crores. So that's about $300 million uh, in terms of fertilizer subsidies, which can again be deployed towards more labor intensive and more climate resilient natural farming practices. Um, just to give another example, subsidies mm-hmm. for coal and oil and gas are mm-hmm. seven times that of our subsidies for renewables. So even if we have to say subsidize liquefied petroleum gas for poor households that need clean cooking fuel, just a rationalization of the subsidy structure would open up more fiscal room for the government to kind of finance a stimulus. So I think there are two very critical elements about this. The the financing of the stimulus has to come from rationalization of subsidies, tariff reform, and all of that. And the deployment of the stimulus has to come in terms of which sectors are going to give you that new opportunity to grow. And that's where I, that is how I say we can 
square of potential impossible trinity of jobs growth and sustainability most public policy tends to support one of two or three of of these three either you support yeah. jobs and growth or you support jobs and sustainability but we have now have an opportunity to to use this new stimulus whenever it comes to square that impossible trinity I think that's great. I'd not heard of the impossible trinity before, but you're so right. And it's and it's a really, I mean, in a, such a down uh, and and somewhat depressing situation, it really is amazing to think about the potential for being able to create productivity and jobs and and you know possible benefits for for uh, for the environment as well. I, okay, listen, I want to ask two more questions. I lied. Uh, you've written and talked about two additional issues that are related to. Uh, the the present moment in the coronavirus uh, downturn and and everything, but one is on on air pollution uh, and a really compelling sort of TED talk that you did, you know, talking not just about the rationale for for reducing air pollution, but really creating a democratic movement around the need for clean air. Do you think that that has been helped by uh, the fact that you know uh, factories have been shut, people haven't been driving as much, and the air pollution has sort of cleaned up a bit? I mean, is that helping your cause there's no doubt there's been an improvement in air quality uh, by some measures maybe about 70% reduction in air pollution in uh, in some of the cities to the extent it helps the cause it basically makes the average citizen realize what it is they were missing that's why even in my ted talk i started with the china story uh, and, and the repeated attempts in china whether it was before the olympics or when the shanghai expo world expo happened in 2010 or later when the apex summit happened those were episodic you shut down power plants off and on and then there was a moment when people said make these blue skies permanent and that's what triggered their version of a democratic demand even though it's not a democracy uh, to <laughs> to to do this in a in a kind of more sustained fashion So I am hoping that at least this this realization that this is what we were missing, this is what we can benefit from. This is how, when we are thinking about public health as a reason why our economy has come to a standstill, air pollution is a public health crisis for India, which also has an economic impact for us. So that realization might contribute to that democratic demand. Uh-huh. Where I, however, still worry about. is that there will be an urgency of trying to get the wheels of the economy moving and i worry that if individuals um you know in their own self rational way um uh, you know pursue a race to the bottom for environmental standards um yeah. the government will not be able to impose um restrictions because everyone just wants to get their shops open and their factories running um sure. so when does the citizen who breathes clean air be uh, is able to convince the same person who also is an economic agent uh, when sure. does the economic agent listen to herself as the citizen right yeah that is going to be the critical political economy question for how do we now sustain this think about the opportunities that look a lot of things that we thought about that the grid will collapse when uh, if you have too much renewables that ain't true uh, because we managed to keep this grid going with a major drop in demand even very concentrated drops in demand like had happened uh, when the prime minister wanted a 9 uh, minute switch off 
at 9 p.m. a few weeks ago as a mark of respect. There was a 32-gigawatt drop in the power demand in that tiny period, and the grid didn't fall, you know. So yeah. we know that we can handle this. We blame the farmers in Punjab, but actually there's no crop burning happening right now or, or otherwise. It's actually, we realize that it's our cars. It's our cars and our cities that were responsible for the bulk of the pollution. So can that then trigger the electric vehicle uh, movement? It's our power plants. Even if we have to rely on coal power plants, let's rely on the more efficient coal power plants, which are also going to be cheaper uh, because they uh, generate power at, at a lower price. If we restructure the power procurement arrangements that the distribution companies have. So you're then trying to reduce the losses that the distribution companies uh, have when they have to purchase more expensive power due to longer term uh, contracts that they've signed a long term ago. Um, so I, I think we'll need to find these different um, handles to, to bridge that potential disconnect between the citizen and the economic agent. Uh, it's possible, it's not guaranteed, it'll require dedicated public intervention. So Arunava, you also have written about the need for uh, more productive multilateral engagement or coordination at this point in time. I've written about the same topic, so I'm I, I'm predisposed to to want to hear your views on this. But but what do you think we, the international community should be doing right now that it's not? Well, the international community needs to be doing a lot of things. <laughs> the question is whether it will <laughs> manage to do that, and that's why I have been trying to. Uh, focus a little bit on what is the minimum that the international community needs to be doing, right? And again, you know, if I reflect back on my earlier questions about, you know, uh, a relief versus a recovery and a stimulus, um, and just use a similar analogy, I think there is no question that from a relief point of view, um, there is the there has been a breakdown in the kind of coordination that uh, should have been there in terms of, you know, pooling resources for the, uh, the public health interventions or equipment, um, uh, test kits, etc. that all countries around the world needed. And, and it just demonstrates that, uh, you know, we have very rapidly fallen into a very insular isolationist approach uh, towards something that actually has planetary-wide uh, impact and implications. Um, so then where does hope lie? Um, I have argued that we need to think about um, what I call de minimis multilateralism, the minimum on which our interests can converge. <laughs> and what will help us bring us uh, to the table? Uh, for me, it is not issues of common interests like trade or finance. Those are very important issues. But those are issues on which we negotiate and we, we take a bit and we give a bit um, and we try and find, you know, make relative gains. And then we free ride or freeload on each other. And then we have a problem of enforcement in international organizations. I think right now what we need is a convergence around issues of common aversion. What are the issues? What are the outcomes that we all have an interest in avoiding? We all have an interest in avoiding pandemics. Uh, and pandemics are just yeah. one part of the kinds of environmental risks that the planet faces and that we all face. It could be extreme weather events. It could be a food shock. 
It could be um, a combination of a pandemic, vector-borne diseases, uh, agricultural output dropping, water stress, uh, uh, extreme weather events, and a food shock. That's what I call a perfect storm of shocks. And these perfect storms have not just a kind of immediate humanitarian impact, which is tragic in and of itself, but it has a major economic impact, which we are observing. And what is most scary for me is that it has a political impact because we don't have the systems in our communities as humans to handle this kind of shock as a, as a society. Those are the kinds of issues around which we should have common aversions. And that's where we need to divert our resources. So mm -hmm. I would argue that even as countries are trying to stimulate their economies and there will be a requirement of, say, monetary or fiscal policy coordination so that you don't have exchange rate devaluations happening in a, you know, beggar than neighbor basis or tariff walls going up left, right and center. All of that has to happen in any case. But the new area in which we should converge is donning a risk lens to look at and pay attention to the tail end risks, the risks that have low probability but high catastrophic impact at a planetary scale. Once we begin to do that, then we know that there is an interest that we all have in pooling our resources to avoid that kind of an outcome, to coordinating the response measures, to building the resilience in our economies and in our communities. And this can also have an international monetary um, kind of contribution that can be made as well on which I'm writing, I'll, I'll, I'll release something in a few weeks time. So that's really what I have to say on that matter. It's, uh, you know, it's, it, it doesn't sound great to, you know, we're not <laughs> waving the flag of multilateralism in the 75th year of the United Nations, but that doesn't mean international cooperation uh, is uh, forever written off. There are specific issues on which we can come together here and now as well. Yeah, no, I, I, I like it very much. I mean, it's it, it, you're right. It doesn't uh, it's not quite as happy as win win. But don't lose is a pretty good, uh, a pretty, pretty good thing to organize around. as that, well. That's nicely put. I'm going to steal that, Sarah. <laughs> You should. It's yours. It's yours. Well, listen, I just want to say thank you so much. This has been a fascinating conversation. Your perspective on what's happening and, and what should happen and what could happen is uh, is really important and, and one that I think all of our listeners are going to really benefit from. I just want to say you guys are doing a wonderful job at CEW. Love reading your work and think it's really important. So thanks for spending some time with us and, and uh, keep up the good work to you and all your team. Thank you, Sarah. It's always great to chat with you, and it's always great to have the partnership going with CSIS. So thank you again for having me. Thanks for listening to Energy 360. We hope you enjoyed this deep dive. Look for more episodes wherever you listen to podcasts. Look for us at CSIS.org and follow us on Twitter at CSIS Energy.